You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Hey, let's grab our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, look in the seats in front of you. You can find Mark chapter 9 on page 844. I'm going to go ahead and just dive right in. We've got a lot to cover. For some of you, this will be a familiar passage. For others of you, this will blow your mind. And so I pray no matter where you are on that spectrum, you will learn something about God's character that will influence the way you think, speak, and live. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things? And is it, how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. What an experience these three individuals had. A life-impacting, life-significant, life-changing experience. And we all have had those types of experiences, haven't we? I think back on the day that I met Sally. I remember it so vividly, with vivid details. Unfortunately, as she's gotten older, she's forgotten many of those details. (laughs) Actually, it's me. But I remember walking up to church. I remember I was late. I remember walking into that classroom and scanning the familiar faces and seeing the most beautiful woman in the world I had ever seen up to that point and still have ever seen. I remember the birth of each one of the three, our three girls. I remember the hospitals. I remember walking with my, my wife with her holding her IV stand, and we were trying to hurry up the process. I remember wondering if we were going to come back home. I remember holding them for the, for the first time. I remember my first and only major league at bat. I remember the manager looking down the, the dugout and calling my name. I remember exactly the the player that let me use his helmet. I remember getting a base hit and the conversation that I had with Hal Morris on first. There are experiences in life that impact us forever. And not just the the good ones. There are also the ones like my wife coming to me and sharing with me that she thought we had had a miscarriage. And we had. I remember sitting in the hospital with a member of our church as he drew his last breath. I remember sitting with some friends of our family as they sat in silent shock 
because their dad had just died unexpectedly. Of course, those are life-impacting experiences, but what about the driver who cut you off on the drive-in this morning and made you late? What about the lunch that you're going to have this afternoon? What about the project that your boss sprung on you that you knew you had no more room on your plate, but now this has to be be done in a deadline? What about the teacher who is going to give you a pop quiz this week? What is the expected result of every experience in your life? And the answer is found in this text. Look down at verse 7. The voice that came out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son. Listen. Would you circle that for me? The word listen is the one imperative in this passage. It is a word that is defined by the definition I'll have the team put up on the screen. It is not only hearing, but it is hearing with understanding. It is not only hearing with understanding, it is an understanding that is intended to be producing acting that is according to what you've heard. God expects from every experience in our life to elicit the response God intends. And we'll unpack that as we work through this passage. But first, I want you to see that in order for us to listen in the way and respond the way God expects, we need to listen for God's character more than your details. No matter what your experience is in life, whether it's life-changing, whether it's mundane and rhythmic, whatever experience you have in life, God wants you to see his character and listen for his character more than focusing on your details. Before we get to verse 2, I have to say that the preaching that we do here at Ascend is called expository preaching. And that's so much more than just preaching verse by verse. It's endeavoring to understand what the original author meant to the original audience. And then once we understand that, then we apply it to our first 21st century context. But the challenge with that is that as an expositor, I am expected to leave no stone unturned. So I can't skip over verse 1. I told you last week I would talk about it. But Jesus says to his disciples, there are some of you who are standing here who will not experience or taste death until you have seen the kingdom of God in its power. Man, are there a lot of opinions on what this means. And I have to tell you that as I have studied, I'll save you some time and say that I think the kingdom of God in power is this passage that we're going to be studying this morning. Think that Jesus was saying that there are some of you, there are only three of you out of the 12 who will actually see the kingdom of God in power by seeing me in my transfigured form. So now that we understand that, let's get to actually the details that Mark provides. In verse 2, it says that Jesus was transfigured before them. That is amazing. It's the Greek word metamorphoteo, and it sounds like metamorphosis, where we think of maybe like a caterpillar who transforms into being a butterfly. That's the concept here, is that Jesus changed his appearance. He changed his form. But there are other details that Mark provides. It says in verse 2, after six days, it says that he took with him Peter and James and John. It says that he led them up not only to a mountain, but to a high mountain, did so by themselves. And then it says he was transfigured. And not only was he transfigured, his clothes became radiant. And not only were they radiant, they became white. And not only were they white, they were intensely so, more than anyone in the world could bleach them. Now, I don't know about you, but I want more details. 
I want to know what mountain was this? How tall was it? Was it hard to breathe? Is that why it took six days? Why does Luke say it was about eight days? Why did Jesus choose those three disciples and not the entire group? Why the bleaching of the clothes? You know, friends, I think we take this approach often with the experiences of our lives, don't we? We want to know the why, the what, the how, the when. But what Jesus is doing here by how he unpacks this, what Mark is doing with how he unpacks this is he's moving us beyond the details. I wanted to know why. Why did we have three healthy girls and then God took our fourth baby home? We celebrate the due date of our birth, fourth baby, last Friday. We are confident he was a boy or is a boy. We're either going to call him Maddox or Wilbur Munchkin. I don't know which one would have won. (laughs) We enjoy being able to celebrate the reality that our baby is not dead. Our baby is fully alive right now, dwelling with our Christ, and in that way, we are jealous. But we wonder, what would it have been like for that little guy? Would he have been a baseball player? Would he have been able to join me as my girls went off to their formal this last week in a world that I do not understand? Would we have just played video games together? Would he have given his life to Christ? Why? Those are valid questions. But we need to overrule those pursuit of those details with something else. And that is God's character. God's character is on display. We have to work to see it, though. Look at verse verse 2. After six days, then we see a mountain, and then we see radiant. If you were in the original audience, if you were one of those disciples, you would have put all three of those together, and you would have thought of Exodus 24. Exodus 24 puts all three of those details together with Moses on Mount Sinai, and he was radiant. And then you would have been compelled to go back to Exodus 24, and you would have looked at the context that the the Jews, God's very people, were in the valley, and they were tired of waiting for God, and so they had constructed constructed a golden calf, and, and that golden calf was what they worshiped, and they were sinning grossly before God, and God, instead of destroying the entire nation, gives judgment, yes, but actually extends to them mercy, and we are compelled in that story to see God's character. Friend, listen to me. The hero of every story of scripture is God. David and Goliath, God. Ark with Noah, God. King David, God. The divided kingdom, God. Babylon, God. Assyria, God. It's all God. And so what Mark is doing by giving us these details for that original audience is reminding us, listen, it is always about God's character. That is where we center our minds. Then God's character is also on display in verse 2. Look at what it says. It says that he took with him three disciples. We're reminded in this, friends, that God is sovereign. He chooses some and not others. Oh, man, that's a doctrine that often kind of grates at us, and we don't like it. And some of you won't come back to this church because I believe in that. But God is sovereign. It's what his word says. 
In fact, as we'll see, there are some who argue, and they say, who was greatest in verse 33 in chapter 9? And while I'm skipping ahead, I think that might have flown out, flowed out of the fact that the other nine are saying, why did the other three get to experience whatever they experienced? I mean, you know when you experience something great and you can't tell somebody, you, you, you don't have a good poker face, do you? Or a rook face if you're from the Bob Jones background like I am. That's, a, that's lost on most of you. But God is sovereign. Why did God choose those three? Well, I think one of the answers to that is, you can write this down and we'll look at it in a few minutes. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. So we see the Old Testament references. We're drawn back to the fact that God is the hero. We look for his character in the Old Testament. We see that God is sovereign. He only chose three and not the other nine. But then we see the third aspect of God's character that's on display, and that is Jesus' identity. Jesus' identity. Remember back in Mark chapter 1. You can flip back there if you'd like. But the author of this gospel gives us the reason why he wrote this gospel, and that is the Jesus that we're reading details about, the Jesus who who made these miracles happen, who walked on the water. This, This Jesus is the Son of God. And that's more than just identifying him as the second member of the Trinity. It's identifying him as the rightful title holder that Adam failed with, that Israel failed with, that Solomon failed with. It is Jesus. He's the Son of God. And and we also see that on display by the, the way that Mark describes him. He was transfigured. No other human was ever transfigured. It says that his clothes were radiant and they were intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. There were some professionals that were called fullers, and what they would do is they would live outside of the village because they needed a lot of space. They needed a lot of land because they would wash the clothing. They would lay it out and dry it, and then they would wash it again and then lay it out and dry it and then wash it again and lay it out and dry it. And they had to do that to get rid of the oils and the residuals of the original clothing so that it could be effectively dyed. That analogy was used in the Old Testament. In fact, in Malachi 3, 1 and 2, we'll get to Malachi in just a moment. It talks about that's what God does with his people. He washes them and then he dries them and then he washes them and he dries them. And that analogy is what Mark is providing here. But it's saying that even those professionals that bleach the clothing, even the best that the world has to offer, could never get the clothing to look like this. This is saying that Jesus is otherworldly. Is not equal to any other human. But then we also see God's character in his compassion. You say, where do we see that? Well, remember what had happened back in chapter 8, verse 32? Remember Jesus had just said to his disciples, he said, listen, I'm going to die. And the disciples are like, no! Peter even grabs Jesus and pulls him to the side. Remember, he used that stage whisper, you can't die. And all the disciples are like, yes, Peter's right. And so what did Jesus do? He took those three pillars of the church that he knew would be pillars. And he said, I'm going to give you this experience because I know right now you're struggling. The God of the universe, through the details that he provides with Jesus and with the details that Mark provides and the details that he leaves out, wants us to remember that in all of our experiences that we must listen for God's character more than our details. Number two, listen for the gospel more than your emotions. 
I mean, this was an amazing experience if it would have just finished at verse 3, but yet verse 4 tells us there is more. But wait, there's more. And there appeared also to them Elijah and Moses. Now, again, I ask questions of Scripture. How do they know? I mean, there are no photographs. There's no paintings. Did they wear name tags? We have no idea, but what we can tell from the text is it was really Elijah and it was really Moses. What an amazing experience. And so Peter's looking at this as as Peter often does with his personality. Maybe some of you can relate to me and Peter on this. We don't like awkward silence. I have to tell you, if you're ever in one of our small groups and you, you hear like two seconds of awkward silence, just know I'm working hard. Like right now, I'm freaking out. I'm like, pastor, preach. <laughs> and so that's Peter. Peter cannot stand awkward silence. And so he speaks up and he puts his foot in his mouth. He says, Rabbi, it's great that we're here. Great that we're here. And actually, I have an action item for us. Let's build three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Remember who's dictating this to Mark? Most likely it's Peter. And Peter's like, I don't even know what I was saying. (laughs) But he does reveal why he did it. And there was a motivation here in verse 6. Look what it says. They, plural, were terrified. They were emotional. Their emotions got the best of them. And as they're shaking in their sandals, they're like elbowing Peter, like, say something, say something. You know, friends, our culture likes to focus on emotions, but it wasn't the case when I was growing up. I'm going to sound like that old guy. Back in my day. But listen, back in my day, T-ball actually kept score. (laughs) There were actually winners and losers. And listen, I, I was, my, the name of my team like, had to start down here and go all the way around. We were not like the Orioles or the Royals. We were Dr. Judith Gomez, chiropractor. <laughs> and we were losers. But I learned how to lose when I was young. Listen, back in my day, when we took tests, you got what you got. There was none of this retaking of tests. Back in my day, <laughs> sound like Jeff Foxworthy. Back in my day, no, listen, when we woke up in the morning and we were just off, we had to suck it up, buttercup. You didn't get to just stay in bed and take a personal mental health day. Now, hear me on this. I think there have been some good developments in our society today. I think there are days when you do need to take a mental health day. I think there are ways that we can actually help our kids understand that just because you lost doesn't mean you're a loser, I think we can think as teachers and our, all of the kids get a bad grade. Okay, maybe there might be something on me as a teacher. And so the point that I'm making, though, is that, yes, we should pay attention to our emotions. But, beloved, listen, this is my thesis. I think this focus on our emotions has led to a soft society. I think we don't know how to work hard anymore. I think we can hear a boss that gives us things to do and we can think that it's a toxic environment. I think we have created a soft culture by emphasizing emotions. That's my point. 
Emotions are good. Emotions are valuable. But this experience with Peter, James, and John and the details that Mark gives us reminds us that there is something that must overrule our emotions in the middle of our experiences, and that is the gospel. Now, how do I show that? Well, I'll explain it to you first by giving you a definition of the gospel. And I'll ask the team to put it up on the screen and leave it up there for a few minutes because it's a long one. The gospel is the good news that the broken creation is in process of being restored by the creator through God's son, Jesus Christ, and everyone who rests in his completed work for their forgiveness and commits their lives to his rule can experience the beginning benefits of that restoration in this life and be assured of their complete restoration in eternity dwelling with him. I know it's long, but I think it covers the majority of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. We live in a broken world. This thing is broken. That's why there's miscarriages. That's why there's singleness when people desire to be married. That's why there's married couples who have not been able to have kids, and you go on and on and on. We live in a broken world. And it is intended not to overwhelm us and not to discourage us, but to cause us to look beyond this world. To look to the hope of the future. That when our loved ones die, that is not the end if they're saved. That it reminds us that the earth is not our home. We live in a broken world. And all of that is intended to drive our focus to Jesus. And friends, when this becomes the centerpiece of how we think, it will affect how we speak and how we live and how we respond to all of life's circumstances. But let's see the gospel here. The gospel begins as the details are unpacked by the very fact that Elijah and Moses are with Jesus on the mountain and that they're talking to him. You say, well, how do you find that? Would you turn back to Malachi chapter 4? I told you we'd get there. Malachi chapter 4, these are the last words of the chronological canon of the Old Testament. And look what Malachi writes. Remember the law of my servant Moses. The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, which is also another name for Sinai, for all Israel. What the prophet is doing here is he's causing the original audience to look back and to reflect on God's law, to reflect on God's character, to reflect on what is required at this point in God's redemptive history to be able to be identified as a follower of him and as a true person, a follower of God. But then the prophet requires that they look forward. Verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and their hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Beloved, this is the gospel. The gospel looks back. It looks forward. The gospel is the word of God that is not just four books in the New Testament. It is not just the New Testament books. It is Genesis through Revelation. That is a reminder for us vividly of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. It's all of it. And we're reminded of that with Elijah and Moses. 
But also back in Mark chapter 9, we're also reminded by the Shekinah glory. Verse 7, it says, there was a cloud that overshadowed them. The cloud is the Shekinah glory of God. We saw this in the Old Testament. As the Jews went from Egypt to the promised land, there was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And as best as we can tell, that was the Shekinah glory of God that is also described as being in the Holy of Holies, which required that only one person, one day out of the year, could actually enter that place because that's where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. We also remember by putting our Old Testament hats on that in Ezekiel 10, the Shekinah glory of God left the temple not to return until this instant, and possibly in Luke 2 with the angels. This is the Shekinah glory. This is the presence of God the Father. And in verse 7, it says, it overshadowed them. And then it says that a voice came out of that cloud. Now, the the thing that the voice said is almost exactly what it said back in chapter 1, verse 11, where Jesus was baptized, but the disciples weren't there. So the Father repeats what he said. Look at verse 7. It says, this is my beloved son. There's the gospel. This is my son. Where Adam, where Israel, where Solomon failed. This is my son. This is my rightful son. Adam, Israel, Solomon were all shadows pointing to the substance who is Christ. This is my uniquely qualified son. And the father says, I'm also in unique relationship with him. Look at what it says. My beloved son. Friends, this is at the heart of the gospel. So we see the gospel in Moses and Elijah. We see the gospel in the Shekinah glory and what is said. But we also see a third aspect of the gospel, and that is there is individual responsibility. There is individual responsibility. Here is that imperative. The Father says, listen. Friend, if you want to know what activity is required of you to be a follower of Jesus Christ, this listening This hearing to understand, this responding in a way that is appropriate once you understand, this is expected of you as an individual if you are going to claim to be a follower of Christ. But the next prepositional phrase would have blown the original audience away. Now for some of you, this is going to sound like I'm taking an unnecessary departure from the text, but I'm actually staying in the context. See, what the disciples would have expected is this voice to say, listen to Torah. Now, what is Torah? Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what the Jews were proud of following. In fact, your, your relationship with God was measured by your faithfulness to Torah. In fact, the Midrash, which is the commentary of the Old Testament for the Jews, said that Psalm 2, which is believed to be a messianic psalm, That the Messiah was actually capable of being Messiah or qualified to be Messiah because of his faithfulness to Torah. Throughout the generations, Jews have struggled with this concept of Torah. In fact, there's a movement today that still struggles with this concept of Torah. It's called Hebraic roots in some circles. 
This is a group of people who believe that the Old Testament is so important that we should study it and we should actually follow it line by line, precept by precept. And there's actually a time of the year that they call teshuva, which means to return. And what are they returning to? They're returning to following Torah. And so they follow after the feast. They follow after the festivals. They follow the dietary restrictions of Torah. And so that's what the original audience expected. That's what people today might have expected the voice to say. But listen to what he said. Listen to Jesus. It was unexpected for the disciples. It was unexpected for the Jews of Jesus' day. It's unexpected by many today who misunderstand how the Old and the New Testament fit. Friend, I would submit to you that if you want to know what the Old Testament is for, it's two things. One, to display God's character, and two, to point us to Christ. So everything from the Old Testament has a value. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, I didn't come to throw out the Old Testament. I came to actually shed light on it. That's what fulfilled means. I actually came to reveal that the Old Testament was all shadows. The festivals, the laws, King David, Abraham, The Ark of Noah, the Ark of the Covenant, all shadows. And the value of a shadow is the accuracy in which it reflects the substance. And the substance is Jesus Christ. That's why we don't follow the Mosaic Law anymore. That's why we don't observe Passover as an act of obedience anymore. That's why we read, understand, and obey Torah in light of how Jesus taught it and the New Testament teaches it. And so, the voice from the cloud says, listen to Christ. So, beloved, if you want to know whether or not you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then look at the patterns of your life and evaluate whether your thinking, your speaking, and behavior reflects a pattern of obedience to Christ, to how he interpreted the Old Testament, to what he taught, and how his followers taught in the rest of the New Testament. But then there's a fourth aspect of the gospel that is on display. It's embedded in verse 8. Look at what it says. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. I love that. Isn't that awesome? I mean, it's pretty awesome that Elijah and Moses came back. Can we agree on that? But what was most awesome is that Jesus was there in their presence. Let me just remind you, a lot of times people that are followers of Christ will misunderstand Jesus only. I hear this in conversations as we start talking about doctrine that's deep or some tensions in the Christian faith, and they're like, no, 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 I I just love Jesus. I'm just about loving Jesus. But the Jesus that the Bible talks about cares very deeply that his followers actually understand his scripture, understand theology, actually understand how it all fits together. And so we spend our whole lives wrestling, not just throwing up our hands and saying, Jesus, But ultimately, all of our wrestling has the end game of Jesus, right? The end game isn't that I can wow you with big words that are in theology. The end game isn't that I can tell you what Leviticus means. The end game is I get you to Jesus. And we see that physically here in verse 8. They're left with Jesus only. So, of course, Peter and the other two disciples are shaking. Of course, They're expressing their emotions. Of course, all of that. They're human beings. 
But what we see here is that the details that Mark gives and the details that the voice points them to is that listen for the gospel more than our emotions. Number three, listen for the guideline more than your evaluation. So they're coming down the mountain, verse 9. Jesus charges them to tell no one what they had seen, which if you've been with us through the gospel of Mark's study, this is not new, right? Leper, go wash, give your gift, but tell no one. Blind guy that just now can see, go back to your home, don't even enter the village, tell no one. So we're familiar with this. But do you see what Jesus says? We're not familiar with this up to this point. Tell no one what you had seen until, until. Why did Jesus say until? And why did he say until the Son of Man has resurrected? Well, it's actually revealed by the questioning that the disciples have in verse 9, verse 10. They kept the matter to themselves, but they're still questioning, what does this rising from the dead mean? The reason why Jesus does not want them to tell other people about this yet is because it's still cooking in their oven. It's dangerous to teach something that you are still cooking in your own oven, isn't it? One of them that comes to mind in my own life is I started learning about Calvinism. There's some of you, like I can even see it on your faces. I'm watching Calvinism. And I know some of you have PTS from that. I did before I started studying it. And so right now, maybe some of you are hearing, are you a Calvinist? Because if you are, I'm never coming back to this church. Listen, I am a Calvinist, so we can have conversations if you want. But, but I remember studying this, and I was just like, a guy walked me through all of the doctrines of grace and Calvinism. And instead of talking about a system, he was just showing me from Scripture. See in Genesis? There it is. Job? There it is. First Samuel? It's right there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Revelation, it's all there. And he was so patient with me, and he, he worked through my questions and simply just took me to the text instead of to John Calvin. But, but my, as I was cooking that little biscuit, I found myself evangelizing people to Calvin rather than Christ. See, I still had to cook the thing before I could actually teach it. Another op- opportunity for me to be reminded of making sure that pie gets cooked is my study of biblical theology. Which, by the way, I, I defend my dissertation on Friday. I'm begging for your prayers. I'm nervous about that. But I remember when I was first starting to discover some things that challenged some long-held positions, and I was sharing it with the elders, and elders, please do not say amen, but man, those conversations, whoa. Because I was speaking about something that I was just early in my discovery. I was, I was learning what it meant, and I'm trying to teach, and that, that's not easy to do. And so what Jesus is saying here is, wait till the resurrection, because then you're going to have the Holy Spirit. Then you're going to see how all of this fits together. And then when you teach it, you're going to be able to do so clearly. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. I told you we would get there. Because in the rest of this passage in Mark, i got to tell you, it's a little confusing. Because the disciples, they, they asked Jesus, the scribes who are supposed to be the experts on not only what the Bible said, but what it meant, said that Elijah must come first before the end. And Jesus responds and says, Elijah must come first to restore all things. He will restore all things. 
But then he talks about suffering. Then he says that Elijah has already come and that people did to him whatever they wanted. And so the disciples, just like your pastor, were struggling. But listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter. Same Peter that was on that mountain says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When, Peter? Verse 17, for when we rece- he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice that was born to him in the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What does that sound like? The passage that we're studying in Mark. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. He's saying all of these years later, I remember that was an amazing experience. An experience that is unparalleled to every other human experience. Friends, we like to put a lot of weight on experience, don't we? In fact, I see this a lot with my charismatic friends. I'll ask them about some positions that they hold on the gospel or on the word of God. And and a lot of their answers is, well, I had this happen to me. Or I saw that happen. Or God told me this, or I had a vision that did this, and it put a lot of weight in that. And listen, friend, the, the, the point of that evaluation is not whether or not it happened. It is, does it match what Peter's about to say? And what Peter says is, even though I had this unparalleled experience, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So what could more fully confirm that Jesus is God than his face changing, as Matthew and Luke say, than his clothes changing, than Moses and Elijah, Matthew tells us, actually were talking to him about his suffering in Jerusalem. How could anything in life be more effective in proving that Jesus is who he says he is? Well, Peter says even more proving than those experiences, verse 20 and 21 is scripture. That's the guideline. And friend, listen, we have resources in our lives to evaluate. Don't you, when you have a big decision in your life, call in the cavalry? Don't you, when somebody has offended you at work, call in your friends? Don't you, when you're struggling with something in your life, you evaluate it by asking others? But then usually what happens for us is we become the final evaluator. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to when they come to me and they say, hey, you know what? I'm changing jobs and we're moving. Oh, you know, that's great. Good for you. I mean, it's sad for us, but so what counsel did you seek? What counsel? I mean, I'm going to be making more money. My kids are going to be able to be involved in more activities. It's a no-brainer. Okay, have you looked for a solid church there where you can be discipled and make disciples? We'll we'll figure it out. Really? And there's no wonder that we hear months later that, oh man, they're dry. Oh man, their family's struggling. Another thing that we do is we we grab people together to help us evaluate, and we we, we know what they're going to say. They're going to come on our side. And so, friend, when we have experiences in our life, we must override even our evaluators with the guideline, which is 
the word of God. And so I, I want to take us through a quick exercise. I had people come up to me after the service. They, they said it was helpful, and others were like, whoa. So you get to decide. Would you do me a favor? Would you write four columns in your notes? I believe that if you will do this, this will actually help you with your Bible study possibly more than any other resource that you can find on the shelves. Four columns. We're going to walk through Mark chapter 9, the last verses, through this difficult passage, and I'm going to tell you how I concluded it through these four columns. First column at the top, would you put historical? Second column at the top, would you put grammatical or grammar? Third column at the top, would you put biblical theology? And then fourth column at the top, would you put full bloom? So back in Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, he said to them, Elijah, verse 12, does come first. So what he's doing by verses 11 and 12, by the question as well as the answer, is he's taking them back to Malachi. So in order for us to understand Malachi 4, we actually have to understand the context of Malachi. And so by Malachi chapter 3, the Lord is revealing that his people have committed spiritual adultery. That's that famous verse that says God hates divorce. And he's saying, here's the situation, is that basically they have committed adultery and I'm about to divorce ethnic Israel. But God does hate divorce. But the context is, the reason for that is, chapter 2, the priests of God had sinned in their final form. All throughout the prophets, we see that the priests had sinned. The priests had failed. But now in chapter 2, he says, they've sinned. They've broken the covenant. I'm done with them. So in chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi, it says, I am sending a messenger to prepare the way. What's also interesting is that the second part of verse 1 says, I'm sending a second messenger, a beloved messenger, a messenger who will fulfill the covenant and succeed where the priests failed. That's important historical context. It's also historical context to remind us that that Mark 1, 2 and 8 says that John the Baptist was the messenger who prepared the way. So in the historical context, we see that there are two messengers from the Malachi prophecy. One is going to prepare the way. One is going to fulfill where the priests failed. We also know from Mark that there was one who prepared the way that was identified as John the Baptist. But then we must ask the question, to whom does that messenger point? Now we get into the second column, the grammar. Look at Mark chapter 9 and verse 12. It says, he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. That word restore is actually the verb of a subject. The subject is Elijah. So Elijah must restore all things. That's going to be very important for us as we draw the conclusion of who is Elijah. It's also important for us to understand what is he going to restore. He's going to restore Malachi 4, 6, the hearts of the children and the fathers. There is going to be a spiritual restoration. So this is not just political, although it will be eventually. This is not just physical with creation, although it will be, Romans 8 says. But this restoration, we have to understand from Malachi, includes a spiritual restoration. Hmm. 
It also says in verse 12 that there is also suffering of the Son of Man. There's also a treating of him with contempt. There's also an Elijah who is abused and persecuted, verse 13. So we have the history, two messengers, one who is preparing, one who is restoring. We also have the grammar that the restoration is an all things restoration that includes a spiritual as well as physical and political in all things. But then we get to the biblical theology column. This is one that I have to tell you. I grew up in church from the day I cried in the hospital. I've went to Christian school. I've been through all of the felt boards. I had never heard of biblical theology. Biblical theology in its essence is to understand scripture the way scripture intends it to be understood. Or, said another way, every verse, paragraph, passage, book, testament is a scene in a bigger story. And so just as we don't draw conclusions from the Lord of the Rings from one scene, we have to define that scene in light of the whole, the same is biblical theology. And so what we do here is we say, don't just look at this text. Don't just look at these verses. Is there anything else from the rest of the story that informs us what Jesus is talking about? Well, we've had Mark 6, verse 14, where John the Baptist was put in prison and he was actually killed. We have, as Mark is saying here, there is, it is written, saying twice, it is written that the servant, the son of man, will suffer, Isaiah 52 and 53. We also see in Matthew 17, 13, that Matthew says, oh, the disciples understood that Jesus, in the same transfiguration passage in Matthew, understood that Jesus was speaking of John. So we've had the historical reference, two messengers, one preparing the way, one restoring all things. We've had the grammar. He's bringing everything back to its original state, spiritual, physical, and everything that this world offers. We have the biblical theology, which reminds us that he's speaking of John because other passages tell us this. We know that that John suffered. We know that the servant's going to suffer, the son of man. But this is where the last piece comes in, the full bloom. What does full bloom mean? This is like the concept of an apple seed where you can look at a seed and you can say, I don't know what that tree is going to look like. But everything that you need for that tree to be matured is in that seed. But it isn't until the tree becomes fully matured that we can understand all its aspects. Or said another way, full bloom is the light of the New Testament that lets us see everything that in the Old Testament was darkened. And so is there anything in our full-bloom understanding of Scripture that educates us on what Jesus is talking about? And I would submit to you that it's Revelation 21 and verse 5. Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. So when you see that it is Jesus himself who will restore all things, Jesus who will reconcile the spiritual, the political, the, the physical, When you see that there was somebody who would make a way and prepare a way but was not the end game, then I think you can understand that what Jesus is saying here is John did come to prepare the way, but he was still a shadow. And as a shadow, he actually informs you what to expect with me, Jesus, the true Elijah, who will restore all things. 
And if you would have just had eyes to see and seen how everything played out with John, then you will be prepared in a little while when I am brought before the Sanhedrin, when I am arrested in the garden, when I am nailed to a cross, when I am buried in a tomb, when I show up in the room that you had locked, when I ascend into the clouds, your faith would sustain you and you would not be cowardly. And so, beloved, I think this exercise is valuable for us. Because when we study God's word like this, and y'all can do it, just take some time. When you evaluate the history, the grammar, the biblical theology, the full bloom aspect, then you can discover and understand the truths that God intends us to so that when we have life experiences, whether mundane or life impacting, we will listen for God's character more than the details. We will listen for the gospel more than our emotions. And we will listen for the guideline more than your evaluation. Live to the glory of Christ. It's in his name I pray and all God's people said, amen.